0: Workforce Health Engagement, Episode 7, Pitfalls of Workplace Wellness, Does It Do More Harm Than Good? Featuring Al Lewis. Welcome to Workforce Health Engagement, a show exploring strategies to improve your employees' health and productivity and to protect your bottom line. Join us as industry experts discuss how to engage employees in population health management, wellness, and healthcare consumerism. This is a special series by the producers of the top-rated podcast, Engaging Leader. And now, with 20 years of experience as a communication consultant to Fortune 500 companies, helping engage hundreds of thousands of employees, here's your host, Jesse Leahy. Welcome to the show, Engagers. As we discussed back in Episode 4 in our interview with epidemiologist Tom Wilson, it's a good idea to not have blind faith in wellness vendors, but to have a healthy dose of skepticism. For one thing, there are probably leaders and employees at your organization who are skeptical. So you need to anticipate their questions rather than coming across as naive. More importantly, you should review the actual data on the outcomes and think critically about them. Depending on your specific goals for your organization, your wellness program may not actually be meeting your goals. And there's at least one voice today saying that traditional wellness may actually do more harm than good. Al Lewis claims that what he calls the pry, poke, and prod model of corporate wellness leads to hyperdiagnosis and unnecessary treatment, which is a dang- which is dangerous for patients and drives up healthcare costs. Al Lewis is founder and president of the Disease Management Purchasing Consortium. That's an outcomes measurement evaluator in the field of disease management and wellness for health plans, self-insured employers, states, and brokers. Al's book on outcomes measurement, Why Nobody Believes the Numbers, was named 2012 Healthcare Book of the Year in Forbes. His latest book is Surviving Workplace Wellness with Your Dignity, Finances, and Major Organs Intact, co-written with Vic Khanna. It's a book they actually wrote for employees, so we thought it would be a good idea to check out what your employees might be reading that could be very critical about your wellness program. Now, this interview is a phone interview rather than our usual studio interview, so I apologize that's not quite as easy to listen to as our shows normally are. However, I think you're going to love the conversation with Al because he's witty and he asks challenging questions that we should all be thinking about. And as I'll mention after the interview, if Al is asking these challenging questions, you should be prepared to respond to similarly challenging questions from your employees.
1: Al Lewis, thank you for joining us on Workforce Health Engagement. Well, thank you for having me on. Al, this isn't your first book, but it's your first book that's actually targeted to consumers. Uh, Share with us how you got from writing for folks in the industry and business executives to this book that's talking directly to patients
2: well there's a there's a very specific reason for that, which is that the the first two books uh they sold quite well and and in my naivete, I assumed that the people who were buying it were the target audience, which is to say human resource executives and other people who make benefits decisions in companies uh, and uh but i I went at, at, during my travels, I learned that exactly the opposite was true that it was the vendors and the consultants who were buying it, and they were actually shielding the uh, the end user from even knowing that these books existed because they tended to say the opposite of, of the message that the uh, consultants and, and brokers and vendors wanted them to hear. So I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to actually reach human resource executives, I can't write for human resource executives. I have to write for consumers and hope that people who are in the organizations, in the, in the actual large companies, We'll we'll go to human resource and say how come we're doing this when this book says not to.
1: And what led you to start writing on this topic in the first place? Of basically trying to expose some of the things that everybody says is working and thinks is working, but it isn't actually working.
2: Well, if you actually uh, step into what uh, Mr. Peabody and Sherman used to call the wayback machine and uh, and set the <laughs> dial for uh, nineteen ninety seven. Uh, you'll, and, and you can even check this on search engines, I'm actually credited with inventing disease management. So uh, I spent the first 10 years, actually go back to '95. I spent the first 12 years in this field telling everybody how terrific disease management and wellness were. And then in 2007, somebody challenged my methodology and said it didn't show enough savings, and I thought their methodology was wrong. So I sat down with a spreadsheet, and uh, compared the two uh, against some hypothetical uh, you know claims and found that yes in fact the so-called prospective methodology that the uh, uh, at the time the uh, benefits consultants were advocating grossly overstated savings but guess what my own methodology that I'd been telling people for 12 years overstated savings a bit somewhat as well and in fact when i made the adjustment uh, to my own calculations, it turned out there were no savings. So I had to go public with this, and, and, and there's a guy by the name of Vince Caritis who actually wrote a blog on it that said... Uh, uh, father of disease management admits his kid is ugly, or something like that. <laughs> and uh, so then I, I I changed my whole focus to because uh, you know you can't go on. I mean I can't. Certainly plenty of of consultants do advocating something that you know is wrong just to make a lot of money. Uh, so I became the guy who actually told the truth, uh, which uh, turns out to be like uh, like I believe it was said, Jesus who said the uh, a prophet is a pariah in his own land.
1: Yeah. Right. But you're still involved with disease management, right?
2: Yes, and disease management and, and wellness um, are kind of the same. I mean, you're, you're, if anything, your odds of, of savings in disease management are greater because uh, you're starting with a population that's sick, so it's, uh, you're fishing in a stocked pond. Uh, and in fact, the, uh, the Pepsi-Ran study that uh, came out fairly recently showed exactly that, that uh, there were zero savings in wellness and all the savings came from disease management
1: you know that i looked at that study as well and i i found that pretty interesting i also found it interesting that when they study when they looked at the participants who engaged in both the healthy living type activities and the disease management activities that the savings were actually and the improvements were actually even greater and yes,
2: so that was basically where most of the improvement came from. And, uh, and some of that in that study was that you're, you were essentially sort of singling out the people who, number one, had the highest previous cost to begin with, and number two, were the most motivated to change. So some of that change is, is due to, uh, you know, sort of statistical anomaly. But there's, got, there's probably a pony in there as well. You know, I, I would say that this study, even though it showed no benefit, um, in fact, uh, uh, less than one ROI, uh, I think the author, as is appropriate when you're showing no benefit, uh, made all the assumptions in favor of showing a benefit uh, so that nobody could challenge his assumptions.
1: Now, your book is called Surviving Workplace Wellness, and I guess I'd like to start digging into that and exactly how do you define workplace wellness in terms of where your criticisms lie?
2: Well, my criticisms are specifically about uh, what we call the pry, poke, and prod programs where you pry into people's personal lives with health risk assessments, you poke them with needles to do screens, and then you prod them to get checkups when they're not sick. Uh, all three of those things are well. The HRAs are worthless, and they encourage people to lie when you ask questions like, you know, do you ever drive drunk, and and you know, t- tell me about your your drug use and that kind of thing. Uh, and, and and the the screens are essentially exactly, uh, ha- are completely ignore. Uh, government guidelines for screening frequency, so you get a lot of overdiagnosis and overtreatment. And, and vendors love to brag about how many people they diagnosed. We call this hyperdiagnosis. The best example being the state of Nebraska, which, with the exception of the Penn State program that was uh, uh, cut back, the state of Nebraska is probably the worst disease management program ever. And, uh, and they, of course, they won the C. Everett Coop Award, uh, which is generally given to the worst programs. Uh, they bragged about massive numbers of people that they found who were sick in these screens, which is, of course, exactly the opposite. And then they did nothing about it, by the way, which, of course, is exactly the opposite of what you want to do. And that brings us to the third thing we object to, which is paying people to go to the doctor or fining them if they don't go to the doctor um, that, of course, is also a, 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 a staple of wellness programs, and yet all the literature says you should not go to the doctor when you're not sick because your likelihood of overdiagnosis and over-treatment is greater than the chances that they actually find something meaningful that you can fix.
1: In the book, you, you give a number of examples where going to the doctor or getting a screening can lead to Hyperdiagnosis and over treatment, and that doesn't just cost companies extra money. It actually is literally dangerous for people.
2: Uh, yes. If you took, and ex- I put an example of a of a health risk assessment in Chapter 2. And if you took every one of those pieces of advice literally, your chances of being harmed versus benefited are probably 10 to 1 in favor of a harm. Now, in all fairness, most health risk assessments and most screens aren't that bad. But, yeah, uh, the, the idea is really I mean, we're the most over-treated, over-diagnosed, over-prevented society in the history of the world. And the last thing we need is more prevention and more diagnosis and more treatment.
1: So, what, what's an example of one of, of a condition that is actually made worse by screening and, and overdiagnosing. Oh uh,
2: well, anything. Well, uh, let's do several. There's <laughs> so many. Okay. The <laughs> first and the best example is Nebraska. Uh, in Nebraska, they waived all the age restrictions on cancer screening so that they could screen as many people as possible. And then they sent out these flyers with a picture of a beautiful woman on it to get, you know, colonoscopy. Like, this is what the glamorous people do is they get <laughs> colonoscopies, you know. So then they found that about 10% of the people who they screened for, who uh, uh, they did colonoscopies on, had colon cancer. And if and if and that was enough to win the C. Everett Cooper Award. Now now anybody in this business with half a brain says, wait a second, ten percent of people do not have colon cancer. So these poor people were were overdiagnosed. You know they were harmless polyps, uh, mostly harmless polyps. Maybe a couple of them would have turned into cancer. We all have polyps. I've got polyps. Um, so they they made this this massive claim, and 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 uh, and these people. could could theoretically have easily been followed up with more treatment because they were told they had cancer. Except it turned out that the Nebraska vendor, and I don't mind mentioning their name, they're on the record as lying, Health Fitness Corporation, admitted that they were lying about this cancer screen, and in fact, none of these people had cancer. These were simply polyps. So there's there's overdiagnosis, overtreatment, and lying involved in that particular program. So cancer screens should be done according to government guidelines, period. Just because they're free and just because you get flyers with beautiful women on them doesn't mean you should go out and get screened. The next thing is uh, heart. Okay, now this, this happens all the time. The, the biggest risk factors for heart disease, you don't need some biometric screen to tell you, are you smoking? Quit. Do you have a family history? the wellness screens aren't even allowed to ask you that. And those are the two biggest factors besides high, sustained high blood pressure, which you don't need a screen for. You can go to any CVS or Walgreens and find that out. And by the way, you should get that done multiple times anyway. And, um, and uh, morbid obesity, which you know it if you have it. So the, the screens that try to figure out your cholesterol are essentially completely, just about completely worthless. I would say they're, they're completely worthless, and then some actually, because, because cholesterol is a very crude marker and is likely to find as many, sort of send as many people into the treatment trap, uh, more people into the treatment trap by far who don't have a problem than do. And also, if you don't have high cholesterol, you have some of these other risk factors, you're still at risk, you can be lulled into a sense of complacency. So it's wrong on both accounts which is why, by the way, the United States Preventive T- Services Task Force says once every five years is plenty for a uh, cholesterol screen.
1: So you would recommend instead, I guess it's not going to be necessarily the same in every organization, but, but in general, don't don't promote screens more often than what the U.S. Ta- government Task Force recommends. And also you've got a big problem with uh trying to financially incent people to, to do these, because if it, if it was good enough in the first place, you wouldn't have to bribe them to do it.
2: Right. You, you, anything worth getting is worth paying for. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at my iPhone right now. You know, it's a good device. I had to pay for it. Apple did not have to pay me to take it out of their inventory.
1: Well, how about, well, I guess let me play devil's advocate a little bit here. What about where you have, pockets of our population that is actually, tends to be under-treated because they just don't ever go to the doctor. Let's take, um, like I have clients that I work with that are are very much heavily um, male-oriented, so a high percentage of male employees, and men uh, oftentimes uh, are reluctant to go see a doctor even well after symptoms start to appear, and then there's also conditions that don't really have physical symptoms until you're far enough along. What's what's the right approach if you've got a, a lot of those kinds of folks?
2: Okay, that's an excellent question. Let me give it a couple answers. Uh, first, if symptoms are appearing and you're going, and you, it's a question of whether or not you go to get something treated, that's not a, really a wellness issue at that point. I mean, because this is not for a checkup. This is something is wrong with you you have symptoms, if you refuse to see the doctor, I mean, you can't really go around your organization and say, okay, who here has symptoms and is refusing to see the doctor? <laughs> um, so so, so now let's go to the people who are asymptomatic. You know, honestly, if, well, first of all, they're already free. The visits are already free. The type of person who is not going to go to the doctor unless you pay them to go to the doctor, is also the type of person who, if the doctor tells them something's wrong with them, is not going to do anything about it. So it's essentially all for show at that point. Uh, You know, Yogi Berra said it best. He's one of my favorite worldly philosophers. He said, if people don't want to go to the ballpark, you can't stop them. Okay. So, you know, if, if somebody just is not interested in their health, there's nothing you're going to be able to do about it. Now, where the programs do work, and I know we're, we're going to get to this a little bit later on, but where the programs do work is there's some large chunk of people who are interested in their health and do something about it already. There's some other large chunk of people who aren't interested in their health and nothing you're going to do is going to help. And, in fact, if anything, you're considerably more A, you're more likely to harm them than to help them, and B, some of the things you do to help like biggest loser contests uh, turn out to be more harmful than helpful even to people who want who get into them then there's a middle chunk: people who would just as soon be healthy would prefer being healthy to not being healthy. but uh, in the immortal words of the great philosopher um, uh, John Lennon, life is what happens when you're making other plans, and maybe these folks don't have the time or possibly the money to do it and this is a this is a sliver this is maybe ten fifteen percent of your population. Well, they're the ones who are going to benefit from a wellness program that you're you're basically paying everybody or finding everybody or making everybody go to the doctor or whatever. Be, what you really want is this 10 to 15%. You know, gosh, you can't get to the gym. Let's put a gym right here. You know, we're not a big enough company to have a gym. Well, there's a gym down the street. Let's, you know, let's give people free memberships in that gym. Uh, they want to eat healthy, but but the you know the vending machines are pretty gross. You know, let's put some healthy stuff in there. Let's let's make it easy for people who want to change to change, and recognize that we're not going to be able to change people who don't want to change.
1: Well, I'd like to get into more of those ideas for what what can we do. But I guess first of all, how HR executives and CEOs should interpret this book, or I guess if nothing else, it seems like a good book to read so that you aren't totally caught by surprise when you have employees who come to you and ask some of these questions. Like, why why am I forced to get a, a biometric screening or take this HRA at the risk of um, either being fined a certain amount of money or missing out on this incentive? Uh, you need to not be caught by surprise by those, when those questions pop up because they, they, they are very good questions to ask.
2: Uh, yes and in fact the the inspiration for this book was really Penn State where um Highmark and Truven Health and WebMD had put this program in place that was very intrusive and originally the Penn State faculty was saying well look we understand you know you have to save money and you want to improve our health but this is a very intrusive program it violates our privacy and there are these huge fines and we and we don't like this and then we found each other, and oh by the way, it turned out that this program doesn't improve your health; it is more likely to make your health worse, and it's going to cost Penn State money. It's not going to save them any money. So then the employees were up in arms, and they managed to get the program canceled. Uh, it's not canceled; scaled way back. Um, so you want to prevent that from happening to you, and that's that's as good a reason as any to read this book. Uh, The other thing is that it will show you as a CEO or an HR executive how your vendors and your consultants lie to you on a constant basis, and names are named. And by the way, like if I named Mercer in there, which I did, the language that I cut and pasted, the exact language that I said about Mercer, into an email that I sent to Mercer, and I said, if you have any problem with this email that says all these things that you did that are mathematically impossible and or dishonest, or what have you, let me know, because otherwise they're going into the book as is. And they, they were fine with it, you know? So when I say in this book, I name names, and I say that people lie, I'm begging them to sue me. But that's between me and them. For you, for your readers, if you see your vendor or your consultants named in this book, you better look really hard at what they're showing you, because... I doubt very much that they're showing you anything different from what they show other folks, and what they show other folks, according to the book, is simply not simply not possible.
1: It is interesting that so many of the, let's call them wellness program features that you criticize in the book, they're they're just so common, and very often the the very first things that companies are implementing or expanding or, or making bigger and, and of course the Affordable Care Act w- was a big influence on that where we see the the number of sides of incentive being implemented greatly increasing since since that took effect
2: uh yeah and and let me let me preface what I'm about to say by saying i'm ai am a die in the world Democrat who voted twice for Obama, okay, having said that, I got no problem with most of the rest of the ACA this was about the it wasn't just dumb, it was dishonest, because they knew that this was called the Safeway Amendment, where they said, let's let companies put all this money, you know, keep all this money at risk for wellness, because Safeway CEO, Stephen Byrd, said that Safeway had saved 40% on their health expense by a wellness program. Well, it turned out, and this was known before the, bill, the law was passed, it turned out they, Safeway didn't have a wellness program, and the savings were simply due to a high deductible plan. So so the, the government knew that, or the, the Democrats knew that, and yet they went ahead and did this because they needed to make an alliance with the um, the business roundtable, which wanted much more control over its employees. And the business roundtable was hugely supportive of wellness to get the control. So it, this was kind of a um, a devil's bargain that got made, uh, to put this provision in, even though everybody knew that it was false because it allowed businesses to uh, to control their employees better.
1: So one of the lenses that you suggest in the book that company leaders start with, uh, which I, th- I think is interesting, is you say if you were the, the general of an army, would you prefer that your army had high morale or low cholesterol?
2: Yes, that, that is one of our um, catchphrases, and it's the one that I think probably gets quoted the most in the book. It basically says you, you want your employees to come in and give you their best work, uh, and that's how you're going to make money. You're not going to make money because instead of one in 700 having a heart attack, maybe only one in 650 have a heart attack. Uh, and by the way, it's, it's, it's probably not even possible to make that change. So you don't really care about, you know, you don't want to play doctor. You don't want to medicalize your office. You want to make your office a place and your wellness program something that employees want. And that's what that's about. You know, you want them to be excited about it. Um, high morale, not low cholesterol.
1: Now, let's talk about some of the things that you do recommend. Let's say the, the fitness center. What's What is the data on whether that is actually going to make a difference in terms of your, the health of your workforce and your health care costs.
2: Oh, I seriously don't think it's going to make any difference at all to those things. But what it is going to make a difference to is it's going to allow you to attract and retain people who already would have had lower costs for health and also people like these things. Uh, and the best example, I think, is my first book, uh, Why Nobody Believes the Numbers, where I gave an example of a um, a company right around here called Cognex that that noticed that uh, its employees were playing ultimate frisbee during lunch hour on a vacant lot, and then the lot was sold, and Cognex decided, well, rather than let it be sold and have someone put a building on it, we'll buy it. So that we can play Ultimate Frisbee all the time. And then they started attracting a whole bunch of Ultimate Frisbee players. Well, well you know, it, it turns out in their field, which is software, uh, I mean, essentially everybody I play with Ultimate with except for me is in the software biz. So their recruiting expense went way down and their retention went way up. I don't know this, but my suspicion is that their health care costs, well, their health care costs I think did go down, but I think they went down because, number one, because they, number one, they went down because they recruited healthier people. Uh, and number two, I think they, I, I know anecdotally that actually there were a few people got injured on the Frisbee field, so they had to pay those expenses as well. So, uh, you know, it wasn't all unmitigated uh, benefit. Having said that, the, the the big benefit is you get people who are healthier in the first place and the unhealthier people go work for your competitors.
1: Yeah, it, see, I relate this back to your statement about if you were the, uh, the the general of an army, would you rather have an army with high morale or an army with low cholesterol? Obviously, you'd choose high morale, but I would, to me, I was thinking, well, it's the wrong question. I, I'd like an army with high morale and... Great health, great fitness. Okay, so maybe you, know, you can argue whether low cholesterol is a is an indicator of of health. But in this case, with the example that you're, you're sharing, you'd like to be able to attract employees that not only have the skills and attitudes and other attributes that you need, but that that all else being equal, you'd rather that they were healthy.
2: Well, yes, of course, yes, and I think the key thing is they're all else being equal because. You'd much rather. Um, I mean, you'd like to have both, but given the choice, do I want somebody who's out of shape who can do the job, or do I want somebody who's in shape who may not be as good at the job? You can't lose track of the big picture. You know, you're not. You're not literally not in business for your health. And and, and you know, if smoking. I mean, I, I don't. I don't like smoking. I think they cost. I think they you know. I, I, I don't get me started on it. But but boy, you know, if you screen people out for smoking you wouldn't have hired Barack Obama, you know? You lose out on really good people. And that's an extreme example. But you have to remember, I am in business to make money, and my health expense is frankly only about, um, you know, it depends on the company, 10% of payroll. So I, I really want to focus on the big picture here. I want to get the best work out. I want to get the best employees get the best work out of them. And by the way, if that means getting, you know, that I get to get healthy employees too, that's a big benefit. Now, if, if you if you go to the Facebook uh, campus, I'm sorry, the Google campus, you'll actually find, I mean, there's a lot of healthy stuff going on there, but you know something? You can also get pizza, you can get candy, you can get all sorts of unhealthy stuff too because they basically want to be responsive to their employees, so they're known as the best place to work, which they are. They're not known as a place that you have to be healthy to work at, they're known as a place that that you that gets you to give them your best efforts.
1: But you could say, okay, well, that's that's Google or that's Apple, um, and a, a number you quote in the book about that the the average cost for healthcare for is is around six thousand dollars or so per employee. But there's a lot of companies out there where because of the mix of employees that they have and the the pay levels. It's a it's a lot bigger percentage of payroll and, and a lot of companies have costs that for for example, family coverage that are pushing twenty thousand dollars per employee. So well, how I, I, I mean, by the way, the
2: six the six thousand is a per belly button, not per an employee.
1: Okay, per participant. Yeah. yeah. Oh no
2: no 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 uh, per per um covered person.
1: So per cover yeah, for yeah. per covered lives. Okay. Yeah, uh,
2: you, you know, if somebody has, and, and I'd love to meet some of these really high-cost companies because, generally speaking, I think it's because I tend to get this kind of the, you know, kind of the, the, the thought leaders, and the thought leaders tend to work for techier-type companies. My clients uh, tend to have fairly low health costs to begin with. Uh, you know, if you do have high health costs to begin with, then then maybe you should be more directive, but you got to keep two things in mind. One is that no corporation has ever reduced the average weight, and, I, and I'm, I'm using weight as a as a proxy here because that's the thing that people measure. Has ever reduced the average weight of the people in it through wellness? And every single, I mean, I can give you two examples. I mean, Geico did a study, and they it was a very very well done study, but the the result was so Uninspiring in terms of weight reduction, that they didn't even publish the weight reduction. They just said, "Oh, the the study group improved its diet versus the control group," and left it at that. And uh, and then you have a company like ShapeUp Up that made a huge. I mean, they made a press release out of reducing um, weight, cat- you know, improving having 163 people at Highmark, uh, 163 Highmark employees improve their weight category from obese to overweight or overweight to normal out of 19,000. So they did a press release when they got 0.8% of Highmark's employees to go down a weight grade and, oh, by the way, they didn't count the people who went up a weight grade. They didn't count the dropouts. They didn't count the non-participants. They didn't count the people who gained the weight back. So essentially they did nothing. No one has ever done anything. So if you're stuck with high-cost employees, you're stuck with them. Get used to it. And, by the way, the other thing is if you actually look state to state or country to country, the correlation between obesity and productivity is weak, but it goes in the wrong direction. The more obese uh, of the developed countries, the more obese ones are actually growing at a faster rate. And in the United States, the more obese states, are attracting manufacturing jobs, which presumably require more physical dexterity than sitting at a desk, at a faster rate than the other states. So you're, I guess what I'm saying is if you're trying to do anything other than improve the morale of your employees, or give them opportunities to be healthy if they want to, you're probably wasting your time, almost regardless of what percent of payroll your health cost is.
1: So to make sure I'm hearing you right, so you're saying if you are a company that has high health care costs on a per-employee basis, that there's really nothing you can do that would solve that, even if costs are increasing at what many would feel is an unsustainable rate?
2: Uh, I mean, there are things you can do. They involve shifting costs to employees and that kind of thing. But in terms of getting people to voluntarily, um, you you know, make changes on a massive scale that is going to somehow move the needle on your health spending, I mean, the the heart attack rate, you ask people, you say, what exactly are you trying to do by reducing wellness? What medical events are going to go down? And people stumble around They say, well, there's heart attacks. And they say, and what else? And it won't come up with anything. And guess what? The heart attack rate is about between 1 in 700 and 1 in 1,000 in the employed population. So getting that to go down a little, it tends to come down on its own anyway, isn't going to make any difference. The big target for medical spending in the United States is not let's find people who are who are at risk and try to prevent stuff. It's let's find people who are overutilizing and try to avoid that. And there, you know, there are companies who uh, have, you know, are finding that and um, and doing something about it. But that's where the money is. The money is in. Do you really need this CAT scan? And by the way, before you get this CAT scan, do you know number one the five questions that you're supposed to ask your doctor before you get a test? Do you know, and number two, do you know that, that uh, CAT scans introduce, they're like 100 x-rays, worth, or between 100 and 1,000 x-rays worth of radiation, and that they inject dye into you? People generally don't know that. You know, you hear the word scan, you think, oh, I'm looking at the horizon, I'm scanning the horizon, the horizon doesn't seem to mind at all. No health effect on the horizon. That kind of thing. Uh, spinal surgery is another example. Just massively overutilized things and that's where people should be focused. So the the focus on wellness is essentially exactly the opposite of where the bodies are buried in health spending.
1: You mentioned in in the book you talk about helping employees find the higher quality hospitals and and doctors.
2: One is the the general and the cholesterol. So uh have employees develop wellness Culture that is more of a if you build it they will come rather than how much do we have to find you to get you to participate. Number two, stop medicalizing your 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 workforce and use the money that you save to build that that culture. Number three, uh, yes, do focus on on the best um, the the you know the narrow networks, the best doctors, the best hospitals. Uh, look at the leapfrog scores, leapfrog scores every hospital A to C. If you have C hospitals in your network, you probably want to get rid of them. Um, And number four, if people are looking for problem, if people opt into the system with uh, because they they're being over-treated uh, and over-diagnosed and over-treated, you want to be able to give them a solution for that. And there are solutions out there for that. And guess what? Your employees really want the help. I mean, there's a lot that they don't know, and the Internet itself is a very unreliable place to get that information. So if you combine uh, sort of morale-increasing activities with uh, focus on a quality network and helping people who are getting sucked into the treatment trap, you're going to have yourself a, uh, a successful you're going to be successful. Your your employees will be happy and your health care costs will go up at a slower rate than they otherwise would have.
1: It seems like being able to influence employees and help them in those ways requires a lot of trust, that you've you've built up trust over time so that employees are willing to hear what you say and not question your motives.
2: Well, the the company I I don't I don't want to mention uh names of companies that I might have a conflict of interest with, but let me just say that there are companies that that when they help employees in this way, they kind of stay out of it. They they provide information to the employees that has links and um, and the so so the the actual information comes from other sources. So you you don't. Have, I mean, let's face it: the large majority of employees, in survey after survey, do not trust their employer. And if they don't trust their employer in general, they're certainly not going to trust their employer uh, on issues of health insurance. So what you really want to do as employers send them to some place which is, on its face, obviously neutral.
1: Well, and it's interesting. A lot of employers historically have. Assume that a, a one of the a places like that would be, let's say, a WebMD, which you actually criticize a lot in your book.
2: Well, I don't have to criticize them. They, I just merely put up their screenshots. Um, yeah, WebMD, you should get a prostate, a PSA test. Um, you know, WebMD, let's make everybody at Penn State go to the doctor too often and do all sorts of tests they're not supposed to do. I wouldn't. Yeah, I as an employer, you need to you need to vet these companies um and then then pick somebody
1: okay so th- and th- th- there's obviously a lot to dig in there about how do you how do you uh, build that trust and what what uh, organizations could you re- refer people to or recommend them to but even making those referrals and recommendations requires building trust and i think in all that in, in every step you take that that original lens that you started with that if you had, if you were a general, would you want? Would you rather have an army that was had high morale, or high cholesterol? I think is a is a helpful step to take to think about that before you take any any action uh, as to what what could the long term uh, downstream consequences be of uh, doing this potential negative, even though it feels like you might have to at this point in time.
2: Well oh, you know that's absolutely true I mean people yes and yes, I mean people are having to move to high deductible plans, and um you know on balance, I actually think high deductible plans are, are a good idea they they you know they the employees aren't going to like them there are certain things that employers do that employees simply aren't going to like, but employers have to do. Wellness just doesn't happen. to be one of those things. Employers are better off not doing it, and employees are better off not participating in it, whereas with high deductible plans, the employer benefits and the employee doesn't. So at least somebody benefits. And that's that's all I'm saying is let's have plans where somebody benefits.
1: <laughs> well, I guess it's been Al Lewis. The book is Surviving Workplace Wellness with Your Dignity, Finances, and major organs intact. Al, where can people find out more about you and your work?
2: Well, I, I, in one word, Amazon is where the book link is. And uh, it basically just Googling on me and wellness or me and disease management. And also I, I want to recognize my uh, co-author, uh, Vic Khanna. Uh He's got a blog uh, called com, And he has a lot to say as well. And you can go to the healthcare blog and read Vic's stuff and read my stuff. So we're we're very easy to find.
1: Well, Al Lewis, again, the book is Surviving Workplace Wellness. Thank you for joining us on Workforce Health Engagement.
2: You are quite welcome, Jesse, and thank you for having me on.
0: All right, Engagers, that wraps up this episode. Whether or not you like or agree with Al's message, I think he's asking some important questions. You owe it to yourself to look into them and also to be prepared to answer these kinds of questions from your employees. Being proactive about potential tough questions from employees is just one implication regarding how you communicate your health programs. And of course, my colleagues and I at Espinel Communications can help you audit what's currently being communicated to your employees and develop a strategy that will help you meet your objectives. Again, the book by Al Lewis is Surviving Workplace Wellness with Your Dignity, Finances, and Major Organs Intact. And we'll provide the information and links that Al mentioned on our show notes for this episode. You can find the show notes at engagingleader.com forward slash W-H-E-7 as in Workforce Health Engagement Episode 7. And while you're on the show notes page, you can engage with us by providing your thoughts or questions in the comments section or by clicking the red send voicemail button. You can also engage with us at facebook.com forward slash engaging leader or on Twitter where I am at Jesse Leahy. Workforce Health Engagement is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm that specializes in workforce communications, helping midsize and large employers attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results in several areas, not only health engagement, but also talent management, benefits and compensation, business transformation, and more. Find us at AspindaleCommunications.com. If you enjoy this series, be sure to check out the leadership podcast, Engaging Leader, where my guests and I share ways to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. You can find both Workforce Health Engagement and Engaging Leader podcasts, in iTunes, Stitcher, and on our website at engagingleader.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, Cecily Leahy, our web intern, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, over the long term, a program of the day won't help you boost employee health, productivity, and your bottom line. For sustainable success, you need an integrated approach to workforce health engagement.